Welcome, Wanderers. Some of you are just beginning your adventure in the world and works of J.R.R. Tolkien, while others have explored all throughout Middle-earth and beyond many times. If you're a seasoned adventurer, you may have had a chance meeting with my guest for this episode, Larry D. Curtis. I first heard Larry when he was moderating a panel called The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, at Fanex in Salt Lake City last fall. From previously writing for the OneRing.net to starting a podcast called Middle-Earth Musings, Larry is a real wandering wizard when it comes to Lord of the Rings lore. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, Larry, I've heard you describe yourself as not a Tolkien scholar, not a Tolkien linguist, not a Tolkien filmmaker, but rather as a Tolkien journalist. Could you introduce yourself and explain what you mean by you are a Tolkien journalist? Well, I, I don't remember saying that, but that, I, that was well said. I'm glad I did say that. Um, yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. I, I have, um, you know, like people do, I have a lifelong kind of love affair with Tolkien. I'm a journalist also, non-Tolkien. And, uh, and I just fell into kind of the realm of talking and writing and interviewing and all the things that you do about Tolkien with a lot of people who are those things, are genuinely wizards. In fact, literally wizards like it, well... In McKellen, I guess, isn't literally a wizard, but played one. Uh, and so I've just had the opportunity to, to talk to lots and lots of people about Tolkien. Uh, I'm kind of a fan of fans. That's another thing I kind of say. And um, yeah, I've I've literally reported on Tolkien for decades now. So, so I think that's fair to say. Fantastic. What pulls you into Tolkien? What enchants you about his world, his characters, whatever it is? What is it that enchants you? From Tolkien's work, yeah, I was exposed as quite a young child to Tolkien. I, I was given books on a long road trip in a very boring destination at my grandparents' house in Missouri. I was a voracious reader then, and there is a richness and a detail and a depth and a feeling that Tolkien wrote about that I had not encountered before, uh, and maybe haven't quite encountered since. You know, he he set the standard for so much of what we read about and think about and experience in fantasy. I say all the time that he changed the world. And and, and I mean that quite literally. And it's hard to define, but the um, the world building that Tolkien did certainly is is important and real. Um, and it, he just established so much of how we think of modern fantasy. So uh, it's definitely that for me. I guess more than anything to really answer your question without going on and on. It's just the feeling of the depth that Tolkien managed to create uh, so that it isn't just about the story that I'm in or enjoying now, but it's about the feeling that it's so much more that it's real history, even though clearly it's real fantasy. And it, that sort of world building, that level is what really sort of soothes my soul or draws me to Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly understand that for sure. If you could articulate what that feeling is that that soothes your soul, what would you say that is? Well, people now definitely less than maybe even 20 years ago, but definitely less than 50 years ago, 
um, take fantasy a little more seriously than they used to, right? And I would say that, that that's grown and partially because of Tolkien, but also because of things that came after like Star Wars and Harry Potter and lots of things. Um, but Tolkien wrote about how fantasy was a bit of an escape from the real world and that that wasn't a terrible thing. If we're in a prison, we want to escape from that. And the real world is hard. Uh, you know, that's just how it is every day and maybe not every day, but many days. And uh, Tolkien provides that realism and that depth, that soothing of the soul in a way that um, it allows, it feels so genuine and important. And there's, he had something to say, uh, lots of things to say. And so that, that is a nice a diversion from real life. But I, I do want to add that when I say escape, and I think when Tolkien did, and, and when I talk about soothing of the soul, that doesn't mean we leave real life behind, right? And if in a fantasy reading or Tolkien or isn't making life better when we're not reading Tolkien, then probably it's not worthwhile. But it's a nice little it's a little escape. It's a it's a vacation or a diversion. It it is certainly not meant to lose our balance or make Tolkien more important than the real world. But it's a it's a nice little um diversion, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. It it's uh it has a ring of truth to it. Um, you know, so like you can you can so escape kind of that real world, but almost so that you could look at the world with a different lens. You know, you you take a theme like like friendship in the Lord of the Rings, and you can look at well, who's friends with who, and what does it mean to be an actual true friend? You know, everybody needs a friend like Sam, right? So in the one way, you're you are escaping the world, but on the other side, it's like maybe if I don't have a friend like Sam, I need to go find a friend that that can that can be like a Sam to me. Um, so I think. I think yes, there is some some element of escapism, but also just a, a different perspective of looking at the real world and and finding some truths about the human experience there in Tolkien for sure. I think you articulated that, like you just said, what I wish I had said. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. It, it it is a way to so fantasy and it's even horror films, it's even zombie films, it's all those things. They really do allow us to look at our own world, our own lives, our own experiences. Because they're sometimes so different, uh, it's a really good way to kind of examine those things. And I think Tolkien's definitely that. Like friendship is a theme, loyalty is a theme, sacrifice is a theme, sadness is a theme right. as well, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Like that the sadness in Tolkien, but it serves a purpose and it's and it's beautiful and it allows us to examine our own sadness sometimes that way. I I definitely agree with what you said. It's it's a it's a good way to kind of understand our own human experience even though it's elves and dwarves. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, I think in one of your, your podcast episodes, you, you, boldly, you made a bold claim, which was that Tolkien is the author of the 20th century. And you've actually alluded to this a little bit before in your earlier comments. But in what ways do you think Tolkien has impacted our culture? Why is he the author of the 20th century? Well, I wish I could claim that was my original idea, but uh, there there is a book called Tolkien, the Author of the Century, written in the in you know back in the twentieth century. But okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean he he I just said a minute ago he changed the world, and that is no light claim. There's it's almost impossible to find things in pop culture um, that aren't traceable to Tolkien and George R R, R. Martin who not coincidentally by booksellers are named after J.R.R. R. Tolkien, 
said it better than anyone, so I'm going to paraphrase him. But uh, if you studied Japanese paintings, which I don't, but if you did, of there's it might be of the ocean, it might be of a cart or a horse or a warrior or a flower. Very, very often in the background of that painting is Mount Fuji. And and so the painting is not of that, but Mount Fuji looms large. And and Martin said that that's what Tolkien is like in fantasy literature. Mm, that you yeah. you can paint whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. But in the background somewhere is Tolkien, um, kind of overseeing or casting his shadow. And so that's true. So um, Star Wars is a really easy example because everyone knows Star Wars, right? But Ben Kenobi, the wise wizard, owes a lot to Gandalf. Um, and the bad guys own a lot to Sauron, the Dark Lord, Dark the Sith Lord Vader, the Dark Lord. It's mm -hmm. easy to make yep. those. And Harry, Harry Potter the same way. Um, Tolkien established, in fact, dragon. a dragon is a super easy example. Um, when people talk about dragons, they think of certain things. And nearly all of those things apply to Smaug. Uh, and, right. and it's mm -hmm. so prevalent. It's so pervasive in our kind of culture and how we think about dragons that we don't really realize like how much that actually is owed to Tolkien because it's just the normal. But anyone who's ever played a Dungeons and Dragons game <laughs> or all the things that even spawned from there, um, you know, you can trace it back to Tolkien. Not, not to say that he invented fantasy, but he did it, he wrote it and presented it in a way that it overwhelmed what we think of fantasy and, and all the kind of the tropes and all the arcs and the characters that came after it's just really traceable to him and there's some great fantasy that came before and there's a, an awful lot of great fantasy that came after but but he is mount fuji he's just looms so large lord of the rings looms so large in that landscape it's just inescapable so when he wrote those things uh when he published you know mid-century Fantasy was thought of in an entirely different way than it is now. And um, he influenced in a massive way films, television, games. Uh, I mean, probably Dungeons and Dragons wouldn't exist mm -hmm. without Tolkien. And, yeah. And there's so many games that exist because Dungeons and Dragons happened, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I don't know how you calculate that influence. I don't know that you can, but it's massive. And the same, you could talk about film, you can talk about books. He wrote three books. Uh, that's just the norm. A trilogy right. of books is just kind of how it is. Well, why? Because he established that those mm -hmm. parameters. Mm -hmm. So if you write five books or seven, you've kind of broken the mold. Well, the mold exists because Tolkien wrote a trilogy. And he put <laughs> maps in his books. And he put, you know, yes. illustrations in his books. It's all those things. And I don't even think I'm very well capable of articulating it. But that that's my attempt. Yeah, I love I love that you say that and and you brought up maps and I remember reading Tolkien as a kid and um it maps became like my barometer for is this a good fantasy tale or not because Tolkien had maps and it was great and if you had a fantasy book without a map it was like I'm not I'm not going to give you my time because Tolkien gave me maps and it, and I loved checking out the maps. Me too. So, I think you've also mentioned you spent some time on the set of The Hobbit. The Hobbit movies, um, those uh, those came out, oh, I don't know, what's been 10, 15 years now, maybe. Some uh, frightening amount of time. Yes, It seems yes. like yesterday to me. It does. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, number one, 
how do you get wrangled onto being able to be part of the set of the Hobbit? And, and then what was it like there? What did you do? Uh, part one. I mean, I don't know how big or small of an answer you want is the problem. I, I was a journalist with a high degree of interest in Tolkien. And, and I don't know how many of your readers can cast their mind back to like 1999, but um, there was uh, some movies being made, being filmed, shot mm -hmm. in New Zealand of all places, which admittedly I barely understood what New Zealand mm -hmm. was at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they literally, the, the films that I'm talking about literally helped put me, put New Zealand on the map in a literal way for many people in their heads. Um, so anyway, 1999, the internet was very young and fandom was, um, fandom was not young, but online fandom was still yes. kind of young. Mm -hmm. So this website called the one ring.net, I stumbled upon it back in those days and, and it became not only my source for news about these movies, but everyone's. Uh, and, and the movie studio had no idea what to do with that. And the filmmakers had no idea what to do with that. And someone who I'm now fortunate enough to call a friend, her name's Erica. She lives in New Zealand. She's pretty adventurous. She's a tough, like she has the Kiwi spirit. She's like the prototypical Kiwi awesome person. And mm -hmm. she started to figure out like, you know, what, where could they be filming this or where could they be filming that? Um, and she, in fact, she played for the New Zealand Symphony in those days. And somebody, not her, snuck into a quarry site and took some pictures hmm. and sent them to the One Ring and the One Ring released them. Well, the production, not understanding, and the, by the way, it was, you know, Hollywood still, right? They didn't mm -hmm. understand fandom. They served her with a trespass notice. Oh, no. She had trespassed. and But she had airtight alibi that she wasn't even in the city. She was, she was in uh, Auckland, I think playing with the New Zealand Symphony. Mm. Well, that made news in New Zealand, like like national news, and then it made world news. And suddenly they had a PR problem. Uh-oh. Like, what are we going to do? And so Erica was then treated really well, and the OneRing.net was treated really well, and she was invited to come meet the filmmakers. So that was 99. By the time uh, the, the first Lord of the Rings movie rolled out, The Fellowship of the Ring, I had then talked to the people at the one ring and offered help being a journalist and a writer and understanding news i was still just kind of loosely associated but there was an oscar party that year where i met erica where i met other people from the one ring and who should show up at that oscar party but peter jackson oh uh, no after, way uh, yeah after the oscars ended and richard taylor who does who handled uh -huh. a lot of the special effects mm -hmm. and they not only should and in mckellen as well and they oh, showed wow. up carrying their oscars I remember Richard Taylor specifically and handed them around to people in the room and set them on a pool table and chit-chatted with people. So those relationships, those that incredible kind of like what is happening kind of feeling um, developed over the years and um, made, a, made some connections. So I missed the filming of The Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. which was, you know, terrible, but, mm -hmm. but not everybody did from The One Ring. But when The Hobbit films rolled around, I had then been helping volunteering writing doing a lot of events public events like fan x and salt lake city except in atlanta or at san diego comic-con all kinds of things so i had developed enough of a relationship to know um people in peter jackson's circle and i got myself on a plane and said hey 
can we just have a meeting to talk about, you know, things where you're hmm. filming The Hobbit? And uh, they introduced me to Pete, was down on the South Island, and they said, uh, um, I'm from Salt Lake City. They first set me in a tent next to a woman, a linguist from Salt Lake City, which was crazy. Oh, wow. Small world. It was insane. Uh, but at lunchtime, they took me to meet Pete on a bridge. You know, hey, Pete whatever we talked for a minute and he just invited me right then and there like hey you should really come watch this film hmm. um so so you're standing on a you're standing on a bridge with peter jackson having a conversation and he just says why don't you come see what we're doing why don't yeah. you come hang out with us for a while yep. wow that, yep. that blows my mind <laughs> me too uh still a new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. They were filming at the time, like moving around New Zealand, filming uh -huh. like on location. So he said, when we get that, and I, I actually think there was a journalist that was going with them a, a little bit at the time. And I'm sure he didn't want us both to be on top of each other. But he said, mm -hmm. when we're done with this, when we're in the studio, um, you should come stay. So uh, he talked to the studio and I talked to the studio and I was invited to the set for oh, wow. like five or six weeks. Um, and was there every single day observing and living in Wellington, New Zealand while that happened. And then, uh, you know, Oh my goodness. So what did you do? You, you were just hanging out in the studio. Like they have a, like it's the Peter Jackson. It's the, really the studio system that the Lord of the Rings built being mm -hmm. used to make the Hobbit and mm -hmm. King Kong and some other films. So there's lots of sound stages there. Um, maybe not quite, at least from the outside, the same as like, Hollywood sound tasters, but inside, like super functional, mm -hmm. super amazing, high technology. Some were wet. They had an entire like Lake Town, Lake Town in the Hobbit movies. Um, portions of it were in a wet set built there. Oh, the wow. So I was given free reign, just like, here's your pass, man. Have a good time. We'll see you <laughs> oh, at lunch. no way. Uh, yeah, I mean, really insane. And the studio approved it. And they, look, I had earned some trust, right? So people, I wasn't mm -hmm. just. Mm -hmm. not like we were best friends but i wasn't an absolute stranger either and right. so they they did trust me uh with a camera and with a notepad and with a recorder and um they kind of said like hey good luck to you uh, okay here you go and wow. so it was up to, up to me to make friends and um interview people and set up interviews and spend five weeks observing but also mm -hmm. interviewing and and so i did that from everybody from you know hair and makeup to um the guys building sets overnight to actors actresses um stunt people who were always in costume which i couldn't recognize if they were sitting right there because i only knew them as orcs uh, uh -huh. um but just just everybody <laughs> on set i i took went to great pains to kind of understand from top to bottom the whole operation and um you know people were great people were pretty amazing to me yeah so uh so which of the actors or actresses uh were you were you able to actually interview let me let, let's throw it down to one who was who was the best to interview who was the most engaging oh uh, i 
pretty much interviewed all of them. Like there's almost without exception. Um, Lee Pace, who played Thranduil, the Elven King, mm -hmm. is an amazing interview, actually. It's just super smart, super thoughtful. Uh, oftentimes when me or anyone, when you interview actors or actresses, but I mean, look, their main job is to be an actor or an actress. And their mm -hmm. main job isn't to maybe answer questions, especially about their life or about their work. Mm -hmm. And they get asked the same questions over and over and over. Right. So, so that's a challenge for them. It's a challenge for journalists. It's just how it is. But when you ask Lee Pace a question, like that guy, <laughs> he, maybe he's acting, but he, he really <laughs> internalizes that, that question and really thinks about it. And then uh, really looks you in the eye as a you know person, not as I'm on a different level, and really answers thoughtfully. Hmm. Amazing, actually. And he's he's really an intelligent person. So he was a great interview. That's that's who jumps out in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, his performance in the Hobbit movies. Just adds, just add, I mean, we talked about depth earlier, right? I mean, Thranduil. Yeah. What a what a complex character there who in the book doesn't even get a name right, right. He, he gets a name later on when tolkien writes the lord of the rings but uh what a what a performance that he did there in the hobbit movies that's awesome i remember um he he wasn't always on set no one's always on set and i didn't meet or see him for quite a long time actually uh i do remember the costume and the makeup people he was like a legendary like they're mm. like wait until you see him and I, and I was a little skeptical. I'm skeptical about everything, but <laughs> he he was in person, in costume, on set, genuinely just magnificent. And then interviewing him, he was as real and human as could be. So it was pretty pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. There's an article that you wrote in 2006, right? So I'm going to take you back quite a few years. Let's go to 2006. Wow, and I hope I remember. To set, the, to set the stage here, this was just a couple of years after the Lord of the Rings films had come out. It was a couple of years before the Hobbit movies would come out. And I think at this time, the, the, the rumor going around was that they were still planning just two Hobbit movies. They hadn't yet decided on the three. And you wrote an article called An Open Letter to New Line and MGM Regarding the Hobbit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a paragraph there. And I think it's so true for the Hobbit. But what I want you to think about is, would you say the same to the studios of Rings of Power that you said to these studios regarding The Hobbit? So here's, here's what you wrote. You said, while New Line and MGM hold the rights to make and distribute The Hobbit, we feel that we own it too. It is our story too. For many of us, it has been an old friend for decades. Not only is it part of our childhood, it is part of our adolescence and our adulthood. So take good care of our story, and we know from decades of experience and lots of readings, our story will take good care of you. If you trust it, so will its fans. Trust the story. For us, it is the character and heart that will lend this film magic and make it majestic. Wow. Is it possible that I can be impressed by something I wrote? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, hooray for me. Um, I, yeah, I believe those words definitely now i believe them about the hobbit and i definitely believe them about rings of power um i think adapting tolkien is hard making rings of power is hard making the hobbit is hard but i do think the key is right there that that there's a reason 
that you have this podcast. There's a reason why anyone talks about Tolkien. There's a reason why it resonates, or lots of reasons. But um, the story is to be trusted. I definitely agree with that. I agree with myself. What do you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So help me reconcile this because I think some of the showrunners for for the Rings of Power, and I, I'm not trying to be controversial here. I'm just kind of trying to 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 look at a point critically. But the the Amazon showrunners for Rings of Power, they've said to the effect of, "We're trying to adapt the novel that Tolkien didn't write," and and they picked a time. In you know the Second Age Middle Earth, where Tolkien wrote a few things, there was some skeleton. There were a couple of fleshed out stories. There were some characters like like Galadriel who were established all throughout, but yet they've kind of deviated from Tolkien's story somewhat. So so reconcile. Do you think Rings of Power has stayed true to the story of Tolkien? Have they deviated at all, or have they deviated too much? Kind of give us your thoughts on that. Super complex. Uh... There's there's a few ways to approach adaptation, right? So there's no doubt that if you want to analyze Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings or or his Hobbit, probably even more, there's no doubt that you will find just many discrepancies from the text to the film. Mm-hmm. But what he succeeded at, especially in Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit maybe is debatable, but but I would say parts of the Hobbit for sure, right? But what he succeeded at in Lord of the Rings is that it felt the same, right? So the adaptation maybe wasn't one to one literal, but the sort of the feeling, and not for everyone. Uh, there's plenty of people who will nitpick this, but the success of the film speaks pretty loudly that that artistically they worked for for Tolkien fans. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter's um, adaptation felt right. So with Rings of Power. You can you can say, oh, we've dotted some I's and we've crossed our T's and we and this is true to the lore. And sometimes, by the way, um, I've read a lot of criticism of Rings of Power, and I think some of it's fair and some of it's not. Sometimes it's been criticized for for getting things wrong that it got right, uh, hmm. like because maybe some the showrunners maybe know an obscure reference or an obscure mm-hmm. fact that the audience doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, so so they technically got something right, but it felt wrong to the audience, and so so it's really tricky because you're you kind of want to do both things, um, and it's it's hard work to do. So did did Rings of Power deviate? I think it did. I think they chose the right era. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm no one cares, but I know that at conventions and on panels that I said they should do the Fall of Numenor, like I. 100 mm-hmm. percent think that's the right kind of thing to pick and that's what they're doing but here's where i don't think they got it right i i don't think that season one um should have probably been focused on a like a, a who done it so it was mm. it felt very much like well who was sauron we have mm-hmm. to yep what's the mystery but that's to me and who is gandalf and who are these wizards like i i don't think that's the right questions to be asking in the series mm-hmm. um so yeah i think they kind of got that wrong i'm really happy that there's season two and they can mm-hmm. correct the ship and that's a luxury you don't have in movies right um and and it's clear i don't know how much you or or your audience follows like the day-to-day 
rings of power. I do and I don't, but there's a lot of changes from season one to season mm-hmm. two, a lot of changes, which mm-hmm. is a pretty good signal that the studio or fans or both or the showrunners themselves feel like, well, we didn't get everything right. I think it's pretty clear they didn't. Um, and and it's, look, if people love it, I hooray. I'm glad when people love things. Like, you should. Uh, again, if I was in charge, it would have been different. And And I would have, I feel like they didn't quite get the feeling right whatever else even if they got the facts right where there there are some beautiful like shots of numenor the Mm -hmm. island where men live there were some beautiful shots of middle earth there were some great ideas there were great sequences there were lots of things to love but overall it didn't quite feel right to me so that's pretty important yeah that's awesome i love how you say uh you know they got some things right but there was there was a a a feeling that was missing right it didn't feel quite Quite right, and even if it was some obscure lore reference that was portrayed that most people missed, if it's not adapted well or it has that feeling, then it it can be off, you know. Yeah. And 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 I look at one example. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Just this will reveal how nerdy I am. But you look at the the troll fights. I just read in the Fellowship of the Ring the chapter on Moria where they kind of fight the troll. Like it's not that big of a deal. It's kind of done and couple of sentences like it's it's not that big of a deal but then you look at peter jackson's movie the fellowship movie and this is this is a really big thing it takes the whole fellowship several uh attempts to to bring that troll down and then you compare that with with galadriel working on that snow troll i think in like uh what was that like episode one of, of rings of power yeah and and it's 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 missing something like Yes, we know Galadriel is athletic. We know that she's she's a great uh, a warrior, but there's something that's just missing when you contrast those two scenes from each other. There's some depth or or some feeling or and I I've really struggled to articulate like what is it that Rings of Power is missing that makes me I want to love it. I want to love it so bad. And and I'm totally fine. I I understand it's an adaptation. Like I I'm not looking for like a one-to-one exact scene thing, but I've really struggled to articulate like why can't I just fall in love with Rings of Power like I did with with the Peter Jackson movies. I actually have some thoughts. Uh like you've you've hit some really fascinating things. So if I go and watch either emotionally or clinically, if I watch the whole of Peter Jackson's three films, the, the there's like a 20 minute segment which is perfect, I think. Perfect cinema, hmm. which is pretty rare. And you just highlighted what it is. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. The troll scene is part of it. But there's that sequence from when they get into Moria mm-hmm. to when they get out of Moria. And it's about 20 minutes. But it's about as good as filmmaking gets. Like it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a slightly dated some effects or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Because, it ages well though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it does. Uh, it's pretty incredible, and the emotional content carries you through. It doesn't really matter. But yeah. that segment is phenomenal, and it it like I'm not gonna like pretend Pete Jackson and I like trade Christmas cards, but like <laughs> I feel like I know him a bit. I mm-hmm. talked to him pretty extensively. And I've watched his films extensively. And 
what he does, what I think his strength is, is highlighted in that section. And part of it is what you said about the troll. The troll in Peter Jackson's film, like we connect with him. We understand his motives. We mm. feel like we're watching this intelligent being. And like as he plays cat and mouse with Frodo, it's mm -hmm. like it's nutty how how connected we are to this alien monster we should have no connection to he's really good at monsters he's really good at right. action sequences yep. mm -hmm. like really good and it's really good storytelling so unfairly like it's it's really hard for rings of power but like that's a guy who at those things as as good as anyone in probably in the world like it's world-class storytelling with monsters and with the action sequences because it's not just simple action sequences another example if you go watch the King Kong movies, which some people hate, some movie, not movies, some people don't like, some people do. There's an action sequence with Kong and some um, T-Rexes and some vines and they kind of fall down. Whatever I remember else you, that, yeah. Whatever you want to say about the films, that sequence, that segment is amazing. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's Peter Jackson doing what he does very best. So Rings of Power has to tackle a troll. And and it's not fair, maybe, that, that you and I compared like that fellowship troll sequence to the Gladiol troll sequence, but mm -hmm. it's also inevitable. Mm -hmm. Like we have that context. It's there. It's really hard to be as good as that. And it's not. It's not as good as that. So then I can get straight to some real criticism. I think um the choice to make Gladriel a strong woman doesn't have to mean that she's a strong like uh combatant like that's not the same thing there's lots of ways to be a strong character without being mm -hmm. like the best badass swordsman in the world or something mm -hmm. um but they chose to make it like really visual and really like combative and i don't know that's maybe not the most subtle approach um and i actually in that that troll sequence i kind of felt sorry for the troll like did you have to kill that thing? Did you have to be merciless? Because um, hmm, I didn't, I didn't have a feeling of who the troll was. He just was like this thing in a cold cavern, and they just hurry and kill him really quick. I, like they sh they showed up at his home and killed him, and then left. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that does yeah. put a different light to that. <laughs> so so that's so Rings of Power has the burden of being compared to like, you know, the twenty maybe the twenty minute greatest action sequence in fantasy film. And it's really hard to do. And, and you know, those guys are really inexperienced. The The showrunners were really inexperienced. And that's mm -hmm. pretty hard. Let's hope they get better at things. I'm sure they're better at things. I'm yeah. confident they'll be better. But yeah, but it's that's a really tough, tall order. But also, I agree with you. It is it's lacking that kind of feeling, that sort of connection. I, mm -hmm. like you, wanted desperately to love all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, we've brought up the showrunners. They are rather inexperienced in their filmmaking and, you know, who am I to speak? I've, I've never made a film or convinced right. Amazon to give me billions of dollars to make a film, but, but, uh, I, I do want to trust, like I've, I've read what they've said and, and I can tell that they love Tolkien, I, I that they, no that they doubt. know him and they love him, but there's still some disconnect between having a passion for Tolkien and being able to to funnel that into uh, some sort of a cinema adaptation of Tolkien, and I was getting really worried with some of the marketing before season one, and I was 
my confidence was just kind of plummeting. And then they had that big fan event where they brought in a few influencers. And I remember um, Corey Olson, I think his name is, the Tolkien professor, had mm-hmm. gone over there and and uh, he had asked them, like, what are the themes of Tolkien that that most enliven you or most engage you or something to that effect? And And he said, I don't even know if he's actually said what their answer was, but he said that his their answer brought him to tears that it was a pretty emotional thing for him so that for me was like okay i guess i will trust these showrunners but after season one i'm still like i don't know i don't know guys i i'm cheering for you but come on like we we gotta we gotta we gotta drive this home a little bit more so i'm really hoping that season two will kind of um that that they'll have come into their own a little bit that they've learned a few lessons um and that and that can really really bring us into the second age of middle earth and help us feel enchanted feel enchanted rather than simply having us um suspend our our disbelief yeah i i i agree with all those things and here's a here's an insight for your audience that like i don't think people want to talk about this but it's it's real and i'm in the middle of it and i'll talk about it so when warner brothers decides i should go live in new zealand for (laughs) five weeks right Mm -hmm. and pete is like personally kind to me like right like this movie director is like hey Mm -hmm. larry how's it going um and then you know what here's a side effect one of the actors in the film his parents were on set and so we were like around each other a lot well we got to be really close friends so i i can't it's impossible for me not to have a like skewed perception of that actor and that experience and that movie set. So I, I'm compromised. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And so Corey Olson, I don't at all doubt his character or sincerity, but he and all those influencers that you mentioned and whoever got to go get a behind the scenes mm. glimpse mm-hmm. and talk to people and sit in a room with them. And, and like you just said, those guys are sincere. I totally believe the the filmmakers, the showrunners want to do the best possible job. So when you're in that room with them, you can't help but feel that. But yeah, but the studio is very aware that we can spend a little money and get some guys in a room and this personality will rub off. Make some connections. Mm-hmm. It, it's impossible not to be compromised. So yeah. And then, you know, you and me are at home in front of our TV. It's a totally different experience it, and it can't be helped. It's and true. that's been going on. It's true. As long as there's been movie critics, that's that's just how it is. But what it means to to be behind the scenes, you get compromised, including me. Yeah, absolutely. You you develop those personal connections, and you become quite biased to those people. Yes. And yep, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Well, Larry, why don't we wrap up with uh, you? Tell us out of all of the world of Tolkien, from the Silmarillion to the Hobbit to Unfinished Tales to Lord of the Rings, who is your favorite character and why? I was afraid that was going to be an impossible question. I, it's I a hard all, one. But I always, always gra- I gravitated towards Gimli in Fellowship of the Ring. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, he, there's, you know, he, by the way, never tried to take the ring, which is, has something to do with dwarves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tolkien had these ideas. Like even the dwarves who were compromised by rings just wanted gold. Right. Right. They didn't mm-hmm. necessarily want to take over the world. Mm-hmm. But but I loved I loved grim and and stodgy and stable Gimli and I I didn't actually always love Gimli in the film adaptation 
being the butt of jokes was not my favorite mm-hmm. outcome right. for that character. But like for no real reason then, like what you like when you're eight or 14. But I always really enjoyed Gimli. And, uh, and by the way, in Rings of Power, I loved, this is one of the things I loved. I loved seeing the mm-hmm. deeper peer into dwarven culture. Yes. Middle Earth. Yes. I, like those scenes were my favorite scenes mostly. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that, for no real reason, maybe I think of myself as a dwarf. I can't really put my <laughs> finger on it. But that's the that's the guy I was cheering from, and that's part of the reason why I would go look in the appendices to find out well, what did happen to Gimli. Like what? That's I just wanted to know more. Like what was it like to live in caves and what? Even in the Hobbit, like they had the opportunity to. to go into dwarf lore a bit especially kind of the, some of the wars that dwarves have right. goblins and orcs and and you know pete in my opinion that they kind of swung and missed yeah uh, they could have done some things better in the hobbit and but those are for whatever reason i don't i cannot <laughs> explain to you but that emotionally he connected with me and kind of dwarves connected with me in tolkien's middle earth i love that you say that i was actually really surprised that you said that you said Gimli. Um... I, I didn't think you were you were going to say that, and and um, a few thoughts come to mind is that I mean you've mentioned you're a journalist, you've uh, you know you've you've done a lot of creation of stories, you've written a lot of articles about Lord of the Rings, you have a podcast about Lord of the Rings, um, and so you are essentially engaging in this idea of what Tolkien called, or I don't know if Tolkien called it, but it was sort of his thinking of sub creation, right? Yes. That, that there is this creation and then we work within that and we create even more within that. And that is really interesting when you look at who created the dwarves, it was Aule of the Valar, yes. Yes. who he's the craftsman, he's the creator, and he, he's the one who's building things within, within this world and within Middle Earth. And so you love Gimli for a lot of different reasons. Maybe one of them, and I'm just shooting up from the cuff here, is, is that sub-creation that comes um, from from that creator of the dwarves, who knows? <laughs> I, I, well, I you have to let me comment. I I think that's really insightful. I think you might be right on. And um, sub creation to me is one of the great aspects of Tolkien's work, and it is it is why the adaptation doesn't have to be perfect for me to appreciate it. Right? Because mm-hmm. there's some level of that creation, and I as much as Tolkien wanted people to like adapt his works with care and respect. I also think that there's room for some interpretation for sure. And me being watching the subcreation of The Hobbit, like I went home and went to film school to learn how to tell stories and create. And oh, you know, wow. I'm con- I'm constantly kind of under the current grind. Like I work as a journalist and I go home and work on movie scripts and make short films. Like that. that oh, that's sub-creation. fun. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'd like to. Look, if if I could, I would say I would like to make the Silmarillion for HBO. Yes, that's that's what I yes. want to do. The <laughs> Tolkien Estate wouldn't let me, but I'm like I'm the guy. I should be doing that. That's also partly why, like, it's totally unfair for me to criticize Rings of Power because because this part of my brain is like, you should, Larry, you should be that showrunner, <laughs> which is hmm, absurd. Yeah. But I also I just said it's absurd. Also, I'm like, well, but kind of, yeah. <laughs> so i don't know but yeah it's good like that's good self-insight that i need to think about why do i like gimli sub-creation ally yeah that's a good answer that's beautiful well uh larry thank you for joining us uh this has been this has been a real real treat for me um and uh thanks for thanks for joining us on the lord of the rings podcast 100 my pleasure thanks so much i really appreciate talking to you 
friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.